Welcome to With You in the NICU, a podcast for infant patients' parents and practitioners. Each episode aims to last as long as a pumping session for mom, or you could listen to several while you practice skin-to-skin with baby. With You in the NICU is produced by the Canadian Premature Babies Foundation. This episode is made possible by presenting sponsor Natus with support from Chronically Simple. Your host for With You in the NICU is Jenna Morton, a parenting journalist and mother of two preemie boys. Navigating the world of healthcare for your child often feels overwhelming, especially when you as a parent feel that the staff don't understand your concerns and worries. It's a feeling that our guest today understands and works to change. Sue Robbins is the author of Bird's Eye View, Stories of a Life Lived in Healthcare. She's also a mother who has spent many, many hours interacting with the healthcare system and understands the challenges of being an advocate for your child. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so excited for this conversation. I think people are going to, to take a lot from hearing about your journey and what you've done with that. And so I'd love if you could just start by sharing a little bit about your story. I'll zoom back about 16 years or so and just begin with the baby that I expected was not the baby I got. When uh, our youngest son, Aaron, was born in 2003 and diagnosed with Down syndrome. So it took me a really long time to move from I'd say tolerance to acceptance to finally celebration of him as he is. I, in between that, I started a peer support program for other parents who had children with Down syndrome in Edmonton. And then I had a chance, I think I was trying to make meaning of what had happened in my life. And I had a chance to work for both the Stollery Children's Hospital in Edmonton and the BC Children's Hospital here to help bring the family story into the hospital environment more. So it's something I feel super passionate about. And I'm also a writer by profession. Um, And one thing I did with the hospital staff a lot was preach about the birth of every single baby deserves to be celebrated. And I also talked a lot about saying congratulations to every family instead of I'm sorry. And if I distilled down all my work that I did over the past 10 years with Children's Hospital, I think those are my main two key messages. So that's where I come from. And I actually, I also had, I was diagnosed with breast cancer two years ago. So I had the opportunity to also have a patient experience in the hospital, not just a family one. And so my book, Bird's Eye View, is half of it's about disability and being the mom of a disabled child. And the other half is about being a cancer patient. It's so interesting to hear you talk about those stages, because I think people talk a lot about you know, the stages of grief and, and, you know, going through those in terms of having a birth that was not the way you expected it to. But if you end up being a parent of a child with an ongoing diagnosis, something that you will have to deal with for a lifetime, there's a longer process to all of that. And I think it's, it's powerful for people to hear you talk about how long that process really took. It, it's not something that happens. No, quickly. I mean, grief, as we know, is um, not linear and it's kind of all scrambled up and you go back and forth and jump around different stages. And I would say when Aaron was first born, you know, the shock of his diagnosis took me a long time. I, I kind of feel like there was a black veil over me for a very, very long time. And it was only through 
connecting with other moms and through the kindnesses of others. And often it was health professionals because he did have a lot of health concerns in his early years of life that I think that's what started to help me heal as did journaling. I mean, for me, that was a really big thing is to they say that stories are like a bunch of random things happen to you. And, and if you write them down into a story, it helps make some meaning of random events. And for me, because I'm a writer, that was really important to me. So I'm a big fan of helping families figure out ways to tell their stories. And it doesn't have to be written and you don't have to be behind a podium to do it. You know, it can be like through Instagram or or art or music, or there's lots of different ways to tell stories. But I think that helped me make sense of some of the chaos in the early days was the storytelling piece. So that's something I feel super strongly about. And also for health professionals to understand the family story, you know, I think if they understand it, if we foster understanding that can only help with compassion. And then for us to have a better experience in hospital environments, because I still hear, you know, we have kind experiences and we have unkind experiences and, and taking the time to listen to a family story and for us to understand how to tell it in a way that people understand, I think is, is super important. I'd like you to share a little bit more of that shift that you were able to make from just being focused on your experience, your family experience to helping others and why that was important for you. I think I understood. So I have three kids and my older two are now uh, 26 and 23. And my 23 year old daughter is actually a pediatric nurse. She works, she's a brand new nurse. She works at a children's hospital. Um, but when they were only um, seven and 10, when Aaron was born. So I had lots of little kids running around with me and I think I knew from them that I needed support from other mothers, even with what I would call a typically developing children. And I found that a lot through, I actually was a, a member of La Leche League because I was a breastfeeder and it was a way for me to get together with other like-minded moms. And I in fact became a La Leche leader eventually. And I didn't, I didn't last too long in the organization, but I did know that I needed to be connected up. And it's, a really lonely place to be a mom nowadays. I think if you have family far away and, and people go back to work right away and, and like it's really hard to find other moms out in the community. So the idea of having a group, I think I, I figured that out with my typical developing kids. And so when Aaron was born, I was like, oh my goodness, I have to find other moms. I know that I need this in my life, mostly so I didn't feel so lonely, but I needed more than that I needed peer support, someone who understood what I was going through without me having to explain it. So I needed to meet other moms who had children with Down syndrome. And I was living in Edmonton at the time and there was no group. Like there was no way, like you can't, you know, go in the hospital hallways and walk up and down the hall looking for moms who have babies with Down syndrome. Like you need some mechanism to bring you together. And I think organizations and healthcare could help more with that. I think it's so important. I wrote a letter to our Down syndrome society and I said, can you send my letter to all the families who have a baby that was born in 2003? Because I couldn't contact them directly for confidentiality reasons. I understood that. And so they sent out my letter for me and I had invited people over for coffee. And so I just sat in my house on the day and waited for somebody to show up. And sure enough, three moms came with their little babies and they were all about five months old. We were all born around the same time. Yeah, that was our mom's group. We started it. And it was like the four of us. And it was such a powerful thing to have those other women in my life. So 
I think that it started with that, with that, you know, feeling stronger because I was not alone. And then it moved. I mean, I've worked in healthcare administration my whole life. So I was in nursing for two years before I dropped out and got an English degree in Shakespeare. So I've kind of always had my finger in healthcare. And so I knew from our healthcare experiences that things could be better. And in fact, we had some very negative healthcare experiences at the beginning with Aaron. And so I knew that I wanted to work on making a difference in the healthcare world. And so I started vol like volunteering, which is kind of a classic way to start. And I was on a family council for a rehab hospital for a while. And then the Stollery Children's Hospital actually hired me as a consultant to do the work that I was doing for free, which is a really special place to be at. So that's kind of where it grew from there. But really the foundation was that my coffee group of moms, which we're still in touch today. And our kids are all 16 and they, I don't know, we go on a boat with one of our friends in Lake Okanagan every summer and the boys have great fun jumping off the boat and swimming around. And those friendships were not just important for me, but they became important also for the kids, which I think is something we forget when our kids are young. So they're all pals today. That's amazing. Such a powerful story. How did this shift go from your work to now being a writer on this topic? Well, when Erin was born, I was working for the Ministry of Health on projects and costing and funding. And after he was born, I knew that I would not be going back to work full time. I had a sense of that. A, there was a lot of appointments that I had to run him around to. And I just, I just knew I had to opt out of that kind of traditional work life. And I'm fortunate because my husband has a good job and I was able to do that. So I started um, doing freelance writing, writing about health concerns for a food magazine. And, and it kind of grew from there. So I've been published in a whole bunch of different publications, the Globe and Mail. I've written about Aaron actually quite a bit. He's a bit of a muse for me and being the mom of a son with Down syndrome, although I've been careful lately because I worry about speaking for him when he can actually speak for himself, which is, it's, um, that's a hard lesson to learn. So I, I think I needed, I needed the flexible work hour to be available for Aaron, but it ended up turning out in the end very well, but it took a long time to kind of build that career for myself. And certainly I did work for children's hospitals, but not, it was never full-time. I never worked full-time. I said, if you want me, I'm only going to put in this many hours a month. And in fact, at the Stollery, I worked from home and I came in for meetings. I didn't even want a desk at the hospital. That was important to me so I could have the flexibility. And at the time it might've felt like I was losing something because I lost my regular job you know, with the Ministry of Health. But in, when I look back and reflect, I realize it was actually a gift. And I'm very happy that I've got flexibility in my work time right now. Erin gave me that. It's a lovely way to think about that. Because it is such a major shift for so many people. And it's hard sometimes to see it as a gift when you're in the shift. <laughs> yeah, and I wouldn't expect anyone to, like you have to go through it yourself, right? Like it's like I had cancer too. And so many people say, oh, cancer's a gift. And I'm like, no, don't say that. Like it's like for every individual, we figure that out, our, figure out what was positive and what was negative on our own time. And I think when you have young kids, it's like a really super stressful time, like no matter what. And then if you have a kid that's born early or has a medical condition or a disability, it compounds that stress even more 
And what I wish I could tell new moms is like to be kind to yourself, I think is so important. And that's not just the bubble bath, go to the spa, have a glass of wine thing. Like it's so much deeper than that. And that I wish that I had known that when I had young kids, it took me a long time to figure that piece of it out that I had to be as nurturing towards myself as I was towards everybody else. Cause I did a pretty good job of giving myself away. It's very easy for us to do that. I think, especially in those early years. Yeah. I think it's kind of almost expected by society, especially as a caregiver, if you move into caregiving mode with, I mean, all children you care for, but kind of in a less traditional way for a kid that goes to lots of appointments and has therapies and all that kind of thing. And we're expected to put on this persona and this identity of the mother bear. And I was like, I was, I, I'm still very good at that. I can do that quite easily now and do the whole brave and strong thing. And people are like, Oh, you're such a good advocate. And, but it, in fact, I think I did myself a bit of a disservice that way because I never let myself slow down. I kind of fear that I didn't enjoy Aaron in the early years because I was busy trying to save the world. And I, if I could go back in time, I wish that I had just like given myself a break, you know, not had to be super mom all the time, like not be so busy. I was kind of frantically busy, but I think that was a stage that I had to go through. It was something that I had to do in order to get to the other side. And it's so hard to know when you're in it, whether what you're doing is what's helping you or not. Like you said, you, you kind of, you just have to do it and eventually you figure out which it was. Was it helping you or were you holding yourself back from something? And I think also, like if I think about, so Aaron had lots of therapists came to our house. We had early intervention and, and the expectation was that, you know, he needs all this therapy. Like you have to try to, there was this real fixing mode that happened in the early years with him. And I think once he hit school, I realized that you know, that was part of the almost tolerating. It's like we tolerated the Down syndrome. And I feel as if in the early years, the professionals really wanted to like, I don't know, do therapy to get that extra chromosome out of him, like so that he didn't have Down syndrome anymore. And he was like as normal as possible. And there's a lot of pressure to do that in the early days. And I think it took me a while to realize, like, if you love your kids unconditionally, it means you accept them as they are not as you wish that they would be. And I think we, I caused myself a lot of my own suffering, wishing that Aaron was a different person than he actually is. And I, you know, I, I'm sure he picked up on that too. Like I've heard um, young adults who have say cerebral palsy say, you know, all that therapy my parents sent me to in the early years, it made me feel as if I was broken. And I think that I, I also did that. I bought into that whole, or I'm going to have like the best kid with Down syndrome ever, right? And I'm going to do all these things so that he can be at his full potential and stuff without really just relaxing and enjoying and just taking it as it is. Like I, I did not do that in the early days. I was on this treadmill. That's what it felt like. It is, it's so hard to find that proper balance of wanting to give your child all the best that you can without overwhelming them. I think whether, whether it's dealing with a disability or not, it's so hard to figure out where that, that right spot is. And it's funny you say that about the therapies because we did similar kind of things with our son who has a cerebral palsy diagnosis. Oh. 
Yes, yeah. Um, but his is very, very, very mild. Like one of the mo- like most people don't realize he has it, and so it becomes this very interesting struggle for us, especially because it doesn't impede many things in his life. And so, how much focus do we put on it, and how much focus do we put on the therapies that we could do? What are they really going to give us if we spend all the time doing that? And is it going to impact his view of himself? So yeah, it's, it's a very important conversation, I think, for people to have that we don't have enough. Well, and everybody's different. Every family's different, right? The, the idea of achievement means different things to different families. So I, I, you know, even with a typical developing kid, like people drive their kids around to lessons and, you know, all the time, like that's, they fill up all their time doing that. And I think sometimes we micromanage our children enough and it doesn't allow them to blossom, right? So giving them time on their own to make their own decisions about what's important to them. I think they need the room to do that without us kind of being on them all the time. I I think sometimes we try to make mini me versions, like the, the mini versions of ourselves and that doesn't actually do our kids any favors either. And I, I, I know that I was guilty of that too. And I think everybody has to move through it in their own time. That's, that's what I think. But hopefully with support, you know, from other people who understand what's going on and hopefully with kind and compassionate like therapists and healthcare professionals around you as well. And sometimes that doesn't happen. And that's why I, you know, it's part of the reason I wrote the book is that I wanted health professionals to understand how it feels to have a child with Down syndrome, because I think the feeling part of it is so often left out of that conversation when you have an appointment, because they, you know, people talk about statistics and risks and data. And I can tell you, I only remember one physician out of the many subspecialties that Aaron had to see in the first couple of years of his life, who, you know, it was our pediatrician. Her name was Dr. Darwish. And, and she said, so it must have been a surprise for you to find out Aaron had Down syndrome. And she opened the door for us to talk about how we felt. And no other health professional had done that for us. They had only focused on mostly what was wrong with Aaron. And she also focused on what was right with him. And that in itself help show us the way a little bit. I think that that can happen if you have those special kinds of people in your life. But I think sometimes that's an exception, not the rule, which is too bad. I think my book is really a call to action to have more humanity in healthcare because for everybody, for clinicians too. So Yes, I think it's probably just as important for the providers to keep themselves human and not fall into the clinical traps that can be there for them as well. Yeah. I mean, there's such a, a push for um, efficiency nowadays. And in Canada, that's true too. In the States, it's actually kind of a global thing. It's interesting to watch. Like it's, it's like, but healthcare isn't a car factory. <laughs> like it's like you're dealing with human beings and you need time in order to do that. And I know the physician burnout rate is like sky high. And I think it's because they've drifted away from their original purpose which was to serve patients, right? And I feel for them as well. I think it's good for us to all have an understanding about each other because healthcare is actually about relationships. That's what it's about. Um, And I just, you do need time for them. You do. Although a nurse once told me you can hang an IV with a smile as quickly as you can with a frown. And I love that piece of it because 
you know, sometimes people say, well, we don't have time for kindness or compassion. But in fact, in the moment, even if you only have 10 minutes with somebody, you can be kind and positive in that time. Helping people realize instead of blaming the system, because there are a lot of system problems, but you also have the power within yourself to change an interaction with the patient and family. And, and I think it's important for us to understand what their pressures are too, in order, but they have to help, they have to tell us, right? It's funny, they don't like to allow themselves to be vulnerable. So it's rare that you get to know your healthcare provider. And I think that's one of my call to actions is to, I mean, I love Brenny Brown's work that she does about the power of vulnerability and, and how that's actually how people connect with each other is, is that way. So I, I used to talk a lot to doctors and nurses and allied health professionals about that, about allowing people to see your heart. Yes. And I think it's true. It's, it's very hard for professionals to let that into their professional situation, but it can be so powerful. Yes, yeah. So we're, we've kind of used up our time here. So before we go, <laughs> there, there's something that you would like to leave us with. Yes, okay, I was thinking, I, I had a chance, one of the chapters in my book is based on a talk that I gave to brand new families um, who had babies with Down syndrome. It can be applied to any child that, you know, the child you expected was not the child you got. Um, any unexpected diagnosis or event that happens with children. It's called The Wonder. And so I thought I would end with reading it because it's got both the hopeful and the realistic, I hope, in it. Um, and so it starts with a quote from Natalie Merchant, who was, I'm probably dating myself, but she was a singer with 10,000 Maniacs. And she has a video, uh, I think back from the 90s, where there is a young lady with Down syndrome in her video. And that was actually back then and even now quite significant. And so our community very much latched onto this song as our song. And part of the song says, I'll try to read this without crying because it is a beautiful song. It's called The Wonder. And she says, I believe fate, fate smiled. Destiny laughed as she came to my cradle. No, this child will be able. Laughed as my body she lifted. No, this child will be gifted with love, with patience, and with faith, she'll make her way. So the chapter goes like this. My youngest son is now 16 years old. The trajectory of our entire family's lives changed when his doctor uttered the words Down syndrome. Years have passed and the intense grief has faded. I realize that there is loss associated with parenting all children. No child is perfect and all children are hard work. But with typically developing children, we learn these lessons gradually as they grow up. With our kids with Down syndrome, we're told this immediately upon diagnosis. For me, it felt as if I had been hit by a truck. We must honor the healing that comes from the dark times. For many months, I was mourning the loss of my so-called perfect baby. Looking back, there were many factors that helped me move forward to see the light again. Now I have a quote from Aaron, he said, my personality is good for people, for love, like my family, he says. <laughs> Having Aaron in our lives has changed our entire family. He has infused all of us with wonder. His two older siblings were six and nine when he was born. His sister, Ella, who is now 23 and a pediatric nurse, says that Aaron taught her at an early age to be more patient and inclusive, accepting and non-judgmental. Aaron's older brother, Isaac, shares similar sentiments, adding that Aaron has greatly strengthened his compassion. And Mike, Aaron's dad, emphasizes that Aaron has challenged him in ways he didn't expect, but also warns not to underestimate your child's ability to learn or to enjoy the things that you enjoy. 
For example, Aaron loves swimming competitively, watching hockey, and eating french fries just like his dad. The majority of children's genes come from their mom and dad. For Aaron, it is only the one chromosome that is extra. Ella once said to me, I wish other people could see Aaron as I see him. This is why it's so important for all people who work with children with disabilities, healthcare professionals, therapists, educators, to take the time to understand the actual reality of families. Often people have stereotypes of disabilities stuck in their head, just as I had when Aaron was first born. We all must confront our own ableism if we are to create inclusive environments where everybody belongs. Aaron taught me that different is not of my own suffering in life comes from pining for a different life. I had to move through acceptance to celebration of Aaron in my own time. Yes, some things are harder, but important things in life are hard work. I've also discovered that I can do hard things. Families need to know that they and their children can and will live a good and rich life. Professionals can help by sharing authentic stories of other families, reminding them to take care of themselves and connecting families up with each other. But the most crucial thing that people can do with, when working with families of children is to be aware of their own personal values about disabilities. It is their responsibility to do their research and check those values against the actual lived experience of families and children. For it is love, patience, and faith that will help guide a family's way. Health professionals in particular are in a unique position to help families begin their child's life as a celebration and not a tragedy. That is lovely. Thank you for sharing that. And that's from your book, Bird's Eye View. Yes. And if people want to know more about the book, they can go to your website, which is suerobins.com. And it's sue, S-U-E-R-O-B-I-N-S.com for people that are listening that might want to to pick up more because I know certainly after hearing that chapter I want to know more thank you <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to do this podcast with us I, I very much enjoyed talking to you thank you with you in the NICU is created to keep pumping mothers and others company in and out of the NICU it is produced for the Canadian Premature Babies Foundation by Jenna Morton and Tosh Taylor Financial assistance is provided through education grants from presenting sponsor Natus with support from Chronically Simple. You can learn more about the Canadian Premature Babies Foundation by following them on Facebook or online at cpbf-fbpc.org.